Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. minute where it's time to take a good hard look at Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about minute 94. 94. Which begins with credits for the helicopter and autogyro pilots and it ends with credits for post-production sound. We're not going to talk about the credits. We are going to talk about the movie as a whole. Yes. This is our opportunity to evaluate the story as it has progressed and how the characters have progressed Mm -hmm. and any random thoughts we may have had along the way. This is our final opportunity to review the movie as a whole. We've spent hours and hours and hours reviewing tiny little chunks. This is our opportunity to look at the entire thing all at once. So, Julia, upon reaching the end of The Road Warrior, what do you think of it? I think it's an excellent movie. Mad Max 79 is still my favorite so far. Mm -hmm. At the end of Mad Max 79... I had that opinion that it was my favorite movie. I kind of thought that was mostly a product of having so recently analyzed it so closely. So I I thought that I would do the same thing here. Finish Road Warrior and Road Warrior would now be my favorite. But 79 is still my favorite. I think it's all about Max. Max doesn't have very much of an arc in this movie. And I like to see arcs. I like to see my main character change and grow in some way way Mm -hmm. i don't think max does Mm. i think that's what draws me to mad max 79 is that his life changed so drastically and we saw him change and it wasn't for the better it was for the worse we saw how he went mad and i liked seeing that progression of his life there was no progression in his life in this movie. He was resetting back to the end of Mad Max 79. He had started to get past how hurt he was by the loss of his friends and family and had started forming attachments again to his car, to his dog. And then those were ripped away from him again. And we just reset back to the end of the previous movie. So yeah, 79 is still my favorite. Okay. So what did you think of the movie? I had a lot of fun watching Road Warrior. I I really enjoyed the kinetic nature of it, the fact that there always seemed to be someone on the move. There weren't a lot of downtime moments. There weren't a lot of lulls in the action. We always seemed to be pushing forward. It's not a classical literature deep dive examination into the human experience. It's a series of events that happen over a couple of days, and I find it really easy to follow the progression, and I like that everything that we see in this movie has something that comes before it, a reason why it's happening, and then a result, and then we move on to the next thing. It's very sequential, and maybe it's a little simple in some ways, but I see that as a plus, not so much as a negative. I don't need this nebulous examination of the human spirit all the time. It's nice that there are underlying themes in it, and I'm not going to begrudge those, but I'm also not going to complain because... We spent the last month or so talking about a single action scene. I still feel that Max had a bit of a arc here. 
that he did have some progression over the course of the movie. I like where Max started. I like where Max ended up. I really enjoyed the characters that he met along the way. I know that we had some criticisms of certain characters and how they were portrayed and how they acted and the behind-the-scenes stuff along the way, but I don't feel like that detracts from the overall quality of the film. And it's really easy for me to see why a lot of people look at The Road Warrior as the best of the series. And comparing it to the first one, I am going to have to say that The Road Warrior is now the top of my list as far as the series is concerned. There were just so many moments in that first movie where things stopped. And I like it when things are moving forward. And there was a lot of that in this movie. There wasn't as much of it in the first one. I will admit, though, as we were watching Road Warrior, there were many times where I missed the characters from Mad Max 1979. I think as far as the supporting characters were concerned, there were a lot of really good offerings in that first movie. And in this second movie, they were more just set dressing. There weren't as many side characters that I really felt deeply connected to compared to that first movie, but I still had an amazing time watching it. And it's definitely one of those things where you can watch it over and over and over again, and you'll always find something fresh and new to see in it because there's so much that George Miller packs onto that screen. If you had to pick pick your favorite thing in the road warrior what do you think it would be the gyro captain Mm -hmm. he's my favorite thing from the point of view of the compound dwellers he does almost as much as max does to save them even though from the viewer's point of view max does a whole lot more he works so much harder sacrifices and puts himself at risk so much more than the gyro captain does but A lot of times, the compound dwellers don't see that. They see the gyro captain arriving at the same time as Max and leaving at the same time as Max and getting beat up and actually going out to rescue Max once and he almost lost his machine. So they see just enough of the gyro captain that he appears to be almost as heroic as Max. So in this movie, he's a parallel to Max, and he's just so, he has so much more humanity to him. Mm-hmm. He's good-natured and jolly and interesting. You can tell by the way he acts and the way he talks that there are so many details about his life, current and past, that, you know, we're never going to know. But you can tell that he had a life that was interesting, and he continues to have a life that is interesting. He trains snakes for crying out loud, and then when he's done with them, he eats them. (laughs) (laughs) We don't get a lot of that with Max. He's so closed off and so blank that we don't get a lot of humanity out of him. We know it's in there. He just doesn't show it. Mm-hmm. And the gyro captain, like, shows it in spades. He's overflowing with it. I really like that juxtaposition with Max. And of course, I like that he made a connection with somebody in the compound with Arky and went on to have a life with her and a life leading the dwellers, the great northern tribe. I really like that continuation of an interesting life. Hmm. What was your favorite thing? My favorite thing about this movie has to be the sequence where Max has gotten the rig and he needs to return it to the compound. The run that he makes on the raider camp, it's just him against so many other people and there are such overwhelming odds against him but he is so bound and determined to get that truck into the compound. And it's sort of a appetizer to the final truck chase from the end of the movie, but without all of the multiple storylines happening. It's just Max against the world, and it's the first time that he goes up against 
humongous and he has his part in the pun tete-a-tete with Wes when he breaks through that window where he's fighting him and just that whole sequence from Max stopping on the road to check his shotgun to the horde running away after they kill all the raiders inside the compound. I just love that entire sequence of this movie, and it's absolutely my favorite part of this movie. On the opposite side of that, what was your least favorite thing? I think my least favorite thing about this movie is that we don't get to know the villains as well as we did in the first movie. Did I just steal your thing? Yes. <laughs> in Mad Max 1979, we got a lot of time getting to know the Toe Cutter, getting to know the Acolytes, getting to know Johnny the Boy as an entry-level member of the Horde. And in this movie, the Horde are the great antagonistic faceless because half of them are wearing masks, force that are terrorizing the people in the compound, and we just don't get to learn any more about them. And I understand that we have to sacrifice learning about the Horde in order to learn about the compound. We can't learn everything about everybody. But Toe Cutter was just such a great villain. Hugh Key's Burn put in such an amazing performance and i wish that kiel nielsen had been able to deliver a similar performance as the lord humongous he got some amazing scenes humongous had some great moments the initial address on the compound his standing up on the ridge during the torture montage and his furious revenge charge on the tanker at the end of the movie they were great and seeing Wes so many times. It was really cool to establish that invented rivalry that he had with Max, but at the same time, I just didn't really feel as connected to them as I did to the Acolytes. So I feel like that lack of connection is my least favorite part about the road warrior do you have a least favorite part about the road warrior i do first of all i entirely agree with everything you just said if i had answered first i would have said the same thing okay <laughs> so on board with that so thinking of something else that i don't like about the movie papagallo mm. i've mentioned it time and time again throughout the season that i I don't know what to make of him. I don't really like him. Sometimes he does something that raises my opinion, then he does something that drops my opinion. He's supposed to be the leader of this group of people who will eventually turn into a proper tribe. And you get the sense that there's a reason for that, that there is a charisma there, there's a history, but it's just not communicated to us. Mm -hmm. We, as viewers wouldn't choose him to be our leader. We haven't been convinced. And I think one simple thing could have fixed that was to include the speech that he was giving to the compound dwellers in response to Big Rebecca's attempted mutiny. Yeah. <laughs> where in the movie we went off to watch Max and the Feral Child interact. But in the screenplay, we saw the speech about Papagallo admitting that he made a mistake in staying in the compound too long, talking about his history of him being the one to build up this community. He really was the founder of the community. I think the movie needed those details. Mm -hmm. I think the movie needed to hear him be charismatic in talking to the people. Yeah. To let us know that he's a good leader. Do you think it would have been helpful if they had included that shot in the prologue of him at the Seven Sisters petroleum plant getting up all of the materials from his office? Yes, very much so. It would have answered a lot of questions about who the heck are these people? Where did they come from? How did they come to be in this isolated 
random spot in the middle of the wasteland, yeah, it would have answered a lot of those questions, made it easier to jump to some conclusions. Yeah, I think that would have been helpful. I want to jump back to this idea of Max changing versus not changing. You said at the beginning of this that Max really doesn't change over the course of the movie. And of course, I disagreed with you. So it begs the question, does that actually take place? And let's start by looking at the person he was at the beginning of the movie, and then we'll talk about who he was at the end of the movie, and we'll make our judgment from there. So at the beginning of the movie, it was Max, his dog, the Interceptor, and they seemed to just be driving around aimlessly, collecting fuel and fighting off raiders as they go. And I think you mentioned that he was, at this point, the exact same person as we left off with at the end of the first movie. I think he has recovered a little bit from where he was at the end of 79. Mm -hmm. He has formed some new attachments, some new emotional attachments that are healthy. He's got his car. He's got his dog. He has companionship. And those are good things. And that's a better place than where we left him in the end of 79. Mm -hmm. Now, we've mentioned this a couple of times as we were talking about the movie itself of what each of those things represented. And I think I feel okay with saying that the dog replaced Jesse and Sprague. The car replaced Goose and the MFP. Yes, that's what we discussed, and I really like those analogies. Mm. Do you think that was him holding on to the past physically, as opposed to just his emotional hanging on to the past? I think holding on to and forming such an attachment to the Interceptor could be interpreted as physically holding on to something that connected him to the MFP and to Goose. Although there is the very practical side of he has this vehicle that is very capable, brand spanking new, mm. just built. So, of course, he's going to hold on to it as long as he possibly can. He's going to keep that car because that car is keeping him alive. Right. But he does seem to have a particular attachment to it. I think it's very natural for people in general, but maybe specifically people who have experienced such great loss to feel the need to put their emotions somewhere. Yeah. Even people like Max, who we've discussed it before, he's holding in his grief in an unhealthy way. Oh, that man needs to see a therapist so badly. Yeah, I don't think he was ever taught how to express emotion. No, absolutely not. <laughs> result of his upbringing, I guess. I yeah, but even Max, who is repressing his grief and his feelings, can't help but emotionally connect to this animal that, oh, who knows how he found this animal. Yeah. Or how long he's had him. Who knows? So I don't think he's doing it on purpose. In fact, if he realized he was doing it, he probably would pull back. Yeah. I think he's specifically doing it <laughs> on accident. <laughs> he can't help himself. Right. He can't help himself, but to connect to another living thing. When we first started out, we were talking about how George Miller discovered Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces and the idea of the hero's journey. And so starting with Max in the Interceptor with Dog at the start of this movie, that's the beginning of Max's hero's journey. And I've got the 12-step <laughs> hero's journey wheel up on my screen in front of me. And of course, that first step is being in the ordinary world. I'm pretty sure Max having that first run-in with the Raiders and one of them crashing and him stealing the leaking fuel and then Wes screaming at him, that's just Max's ordinary world. Yes. That's the everyday that he deals with. There's nothing out of the ordinary. The second step on the hero's journey is the call to adventure. I'm not 
quite sure where that call to adventure necessarily comes in, but my guess... Oh, I know. My guess, and you can confirm or deny, is when he finds the gyro captain, the gyro captain yells, gas, fuel, gasoline, thousands of gallons of it. Yep, that's exactly it. And I think there's also something on that wheel about the Herald. Yeah, there, no, the third step is the refusal of the call, which could be when Max was doubtful. Of the gyro captain. Gyro captain said, I know where there's gas. And Max was like, no, you don't. And the gyro captain was like, no, no, I do. Yes, definitely. What I like about the hero's journey and these steps is that not every step is going to be taken every single time. Yeah. And not every step is going to be such a big step as other steps. His refusal was momentary. It was like one word. Yeah. And then the gyro captain came back in with no really and that was it that was his refusal yeah i also see max sitting up on the pinnacle and seeing the scouts being ravaged by the raiders and then nathan stuck to that tire as another sort of call to adventure one that max answers very quickly but then when he gets down to nathan there's another i'd say refusal of the call in that nathan's like ah save me be a good person and max is like no i'm just here for the gas it occurs to me last week when we were talking with the foxes Mm -hmm. i think it was liz who specifically pointed out that max spends the entire movie trying to run away yeah he doesn't want to be in this movie (laughs) yes And the plot just keeps pulling him back and he's trying to run away. So perhaps he is trying to refuse the call to adventure the entire time. Mm -hmm. And the adventure just insists on happening in between his refusals, whether he likes it or not. Yeah. Circumstance just keeps bringing him back after each refusal. Mm -hmm. The fourth step is meeting the mentor, which... I see as that first interaction between Max and Papagallo. I feel like Papagallo fills that mentor status. I agree. I don't like it. It's not like Papagallo. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. <laughs> yeah. The gyro captain could also be the mentor. We could be jumping too far ahead in the story. For instance, when Max meets the gyro captain, he could be the call to action, refusing the call. No, you don't actually know where gas is. Yes, I do. And then gyro captain meets the mentor role. And then Max crossing the threshold is when he goes down to save Nathan. That could also be a thing. But I see Papagallo as the mentor character and Max's crossing of the threshold is him making that deal with the compound dwellers, saying, you give me all the fuel I can carry and my vehicle, and I'll go get you a rig. Max likes to make deals. Because they're simple. Yes, he likes things to be clear-cut. I'm going to do this for you. In return, you're going to do this for me. He tries to make deals throughout the entire movie. I can think of four off the top of my head. Maybe five. So each time he attempts to make a deal, whether it's successful or not, he's crossing some kind of threshold. Yeah. That is pushing him further and further into the adventure. And if any one of those deals didn't happen, then that's an opportunity for him to walk away. Yeah. And, you know, throughout the movie, sometimes he does refuse the deal. Like when Papagala came to him after the rig was brought in, Max got his car back. 
Papagallo came to him with a deal. Max refused the deal. Tried to walk away. Yeah. Did work. So that's another threshold. Once a character has crossed the threshold in the hero's journey, they've passed from what is referred to as the ordinary world into the special world. And that's why I see Max going out to get the rig as him crossing into the special world, because he's crossing into the special world of the feud between Papagallo and the Lord Humongous. He's now a part of it. Where before he was a spectator, now he's involved. And so the sixth step in the special world is the tests, allies, and enemies, which I see him sneaking past the raiders at night, getting help from the feral child, getting up to the pinnacle, seeing that the gyro captain is gone, finding the gyro captain again, and them flying in the machine. Those are those tests, finding allies, fighting enemies along the way. I like that. Those two moments with the feral child and with the gyro captain are both defining moments for each of them where they ally themselves voluntarily with Max. Mm -hmm. Although the gyro captain, when he flies Max to the rig, it's not voluntary. Right. right. <laughs> His voluntary action comes a little bit after that, where Max has set him free and says, go do whatever the heck you want. That's when the gyro captain voluntarily follows Max to the compound. Yeah. The seventh step on the hero's journey is the approach. Now, they describe the approach as the hero and newfound allies prepare for the major challenge in the special world. I see the approach as Max getting the rig, going to the compound, and then preparing to roll out. You could say that Max driving to the compound is just another test another interaction with the enemies which i think is great but once he gets that rig in and they start preparing to leave that's definitely step seven and him bringing the rig in i talked a few minutes ago about defining the feral child and gyro captain as allies when he brings the rig in and is attacked by the horde that is defining them as enemies mm -hmm. that's the first time in the context of the compound that they have been defined as enemies right because when he's driving in the raiders are attacking him because he's got a rig he hasn't blatantly defined himself to the raiders as an ally of the compound until he gets into the compound and fights alongside those people yes Bit of technicality there. <laughs> yes. It makes me wonder if there's a raider with one of those green translucent headbands that's sitting there measuring the books, keeping track of who's allied with who. Be constantly yeah. updating the spreadsheet. After the approach, which as I said is the preparation to face the ordeal, there is step eight. The ordeal, death, and rebirth. Now, in the description that I'm reading, the ordeal is talking about how in the middle of the story, the hero enters a central space in the special world and confronts death or faces his or her greatest fear, and out of the moment of death comes a new life. I see the ordeal as the final battle, but the big thing about that eighth step is the death and rebirth, because Max gets his car back, he gets Dog, they drive away, and of course he's attacked by Wes. The Dog dies, the Interceptor dies, Max almost dies and then he has that rebirth with the gyro captain coming to save him i think max specifically alone as an individual his ordeal was leaving with the interceptor being attacked death and destruction yeah and then there is an ordeal with the camp as a whole that comes next a little down the way after step eight we're still in the special world we're still in this 
lower half of the circle. And the next two steps are interesting because step nine is the reward where the hero takes possession of the treasure won by facing death and there may also be celebration but there is also danger of losing the treasure again. And then step 10, the road back. About three-fourths of the way through the story the hero is driven to complete the adventure leaving the special world to be sure the treasure is brought home. Often a chase scene signals the urgency and danger of the mission. You could say that... The reward that Max takes possession of is the position behind the wheel of the rig, but that part I don't think is so cut and dry. I feel like there's a bit of a departure from the formula of the hero's journey in this instance. I agree. And the formula of the hero's journey is not so formulaic that you can't drop stuff out of it. Right. So I don't think we need to fight so hard for every step to be represented. But I do appreciate that step 10 is called the road back. Mm. And <laughs> quite the, on the nose. And the final climax of this movie is them on a road going somewhere. After step 10, you have something called the resurrection, where it's described at the climax, the hero is severely tested once more on the threshold of home. He or she is purified by a last sacrifice, another moment of death and rebirth, but on a higher and more complete level. By the hero's action, the polarities that were in conflict at the beginning are finally resolved. I feel like this resurrection part is that end point of the chase where you've got Max pulling the feral child back inside the rig. The rig smashes into Humongous. Humongous disintegrates and they end up crawling out of the rig. I think that's Max's resurrection moment because he comes out of that rig, I feel, as a transformed person. He's faced death a second time and he's survived it because he gets out of that rig, walks around, puts the feral child down, notices what the rig is full of, and he smiles. I suppose so. At the very end of the story, I think, is where Max is no longer on the hero's journey. Yeah. It's what inspires me to say that Max didn't have much of an arc Mm -hmm. because, yes, he saves the child and survives the crash for a second time in the same day. He defies death, but then he realizes that he was a decoy and you... (sighs) I just, I expect to see some sort of growth out of that. Mm -hmm. But in the end, he still rejects the prize. I just don't see the completion of the hero's journey. The last step on the hero's journey is called Return with the Elixir, where the hero returns home to continue the journey bearing some element of the treasure that has power to transform the world as the hero has been transformed. See, that's what I think doesn't happen. I actually see that step as him bringing the gyro captain and the feral child back to the compound dwellers. He doesn't let them do that on their own. He doesn't say, I'm done with you guys, go away. He actually accompanies them to the rendezvous point, which I don't think Max would have done at the beginning of the movie. I think the story of Mad Max to the Road Warrior is, like the feral child says at the beginning, the story of Max going into the blighted land and learning to live again. Because I look at Max at the end of the movie, and he has gone beyond clinging to the Interceptor. He's gone beyond clinging to the dog as those surrogates of the life that he left behind. And yeah, he didn't go to the Sunshine Coast. He did not accompany the compound dwellers to their place in the sun. But he still valued their lives enough that when he discovered that he was a decoy, he didn't fly into a rage and turn into a raider to go get his revenge on them. He understood that what he did helped them survive. And by doing something for someone else, 
instead of living solely for himself, I feel like that's the development that he did over the course of this movie. That at the beginning, he's thinking only of himself, and that by the end of this movie, he's learned that he can live for other people again. I think it's interesting that you point out that he didn't fly into a rage and turn into a raider type take revenge because in the screenplay that's exactly how wes reacted to finding out that the tanker was full of sand Mm -hmm. he went into a rage and he killed humongous in revenge and staged an all-out mutiny and we see wes very much as the opposite of max Mm -hmm. you're starting to bring me around to your way of thinking about max and his arc (laughs) i'm coming around begrudgingly because it is insanely subtle i think yeah this arc that you're proposing and for other people who think that it's subtle i want to point out that the act of escorting the gyro captain and the feral child back to the powder river bridge had to take them back through the raiders territory back past the burnt out compound to head in the opposite direction yeah that was treacherous ground that is never even considered in the movie that the three of them still had a dangerous way to traverse and the raiders who are now leaderless are seen just turning around and driving away but that could possibly make them more dangerous than ever. Because mm. now that you have this leaderless group of people who are several different factions, who are once again now several different factions, who need leadership and guidance, and they're going to be vying for that. And as we've seen, their way is violence. Mm. So that is, I think, extra dangerous for the gyro captain and the feral child who are relatively helpless. Yeah. So Max escorting them back now not only makes a ton of sense, which I never thought that it made sense that he went to the rendezvous at all but now it does and it was also a sacrificing act he has no weapons left Mm -hmm. unless he finds the shells on the ground that he spilled out the front window he has nothing left i'm glad you brought that up in the tracking shot looking at the rig when we finally see max and the feral child in the cab i don't remember if i brought this up in minute 90 but you can see wes's arm sticking out underneath the bent off cow catcher and he's holding on to the shotgun so max could walk over to that arm we don't see him do it in 91 but he could walk back over to that arm and pluck the shotgun out of wes's dead hand which he probably does I mean, he has the shotgun in Thunderdome, so... Oh, yeah, so he definitely does. <laughs> Even if we didn't have that confirmation, it only makes sense. At the beginning of this movie, in hindsight, we know that he's walking around with it and it's empty. Yeah. And he still uses it to threaten people and whatnot. Not having any ammo in it changes nothing for him. Yeah. So, of course he's going to grab it. But unless he finds some of the shells... Yeah. Which he could, I mean... It's a big wasteland. I don't know. He turned around... No, 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 no. He had already turned around before he spilled the shells. So the shells would be on the ground behind him, not in front of him. Well, plus it's... Just because he doesn't find those specific shells doesn't mean he'll never find shells. Right. Anyway. But I meant for traversing the raider camps. Right. His immediate use. I also see him going back to the rendezvous point as... Not that he's necessarily going in a specific direction, but a huge out-of-the-way chore for him. Like, going that far north all the way to Powder River is a huge detour for him. Mm, I am going to have to disagree on that one. You're right, he's not going anywhere. He's not going anywhere specific. Yeah. So, no, it's not a detour. But it's taking him... Away from where? 
it's taking him in a direction that he's not going to keep going in. He's going towards the compound dwellers, and the compound dwellers are going to go off towards Sunshine Coast. And so it's pulling him up in a direction that he's not necessarily planning on following. I don't think he has a plan. Plus, he got a fuel fill up with them. So it's just giving him a new starting point? Yeah, I don't think he cares where he goes. We see the lone wolf pointed in the opposite direction as the caravan. I think it's pointed in that direction simply because it's opposite of the caravan. Okay. But still, the idea that he would accompany them, I feel, is a sign of his crop. I also see it as, A, something to do, because what else is he going to do? And B, so you almost had me on your side. <laughs> and B, he's going to get a fuel fill up when he takes them back. Mm-hmm. Because the lone wolf, yes, it left the compound originally full of fuel, but that was a while ago. That was a lot of driving, a lot of high-speed driving to eat up the fuel in that truck. So he's going to get fresh fuel. Okay. Well, we'll agree to disagree on this one. Yeah. We'll let the court of public opinion. I, you know, I, I have to admit that, yes, he does have an arc. I just think that even within that arc, there are self-serving elements. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's where I land. Okay. Transitioning off of Max. And I want to play the what if game a little bit and maybe frame it in such a way that we can envision a world where George Miller looked at the Mad Max universe that he's created and saw it as more of an anthology series as opposed to the story of just one man in the wasteland. If he had written The Road Warrior as the story of just Papagallo and the compound dwellers against the raiders without Max at all, how do you think it would have panned out without Max's involvement? Well, the easy answer is the compound dwellers would all be dead. Mm -hmm. But I think that's too simplistic. The biggest thing that Max did for them was to bring the rig in. Well, no, let me rewind that a little bit. The biggest thing that Max did for them was bring them the knowledge of where the rig was. Yeah. There is nothing to say that somebody else in the compound couldn't have gone out and gotten the rig. They just didn't know where it was. They didn't know it existed. Mm -hmm. You could definitely argue that without Max providing that information that they never would have found it. And the defenses of the compound, yes, were decent, but the raiders were getting more and more desperate, more and more fierce. Yeah. So I think they would have either broken through, just waited them out, or the compound would have made whatever effort they could to leave and the raiders would have picked them off then. Yeah. Because without the rig, they couldn't do the decoy plan. Mm. I imagine a world where they took all of the fuel, put it in the barrels, put it in the caravan vehicles, and they took apart elements from the compound, tore out the walls of the more permanent buildings, used some of the piping as reinforcement, and they built not so much one big tanker war rig, but made the bus gate really reinforced and really tough, and then reinforced all of the other little vehicles they had so that they could roll out with this caravan, leaving the compound wide open. The raiders would see the tanker and think, oh, they're leaving behind the tanker with no defense, Let's take that. And so you'd probably have a bunch of raiders going into the compound, but you'd also have a bunch of raiders chasing the caravan. So in this anthology situation that I imagine, without Max's involvement, we'd still have that big climactic chase. It just there'd be so many more moving pieces to it, and they'd probably have a much rougher time of it. Yeah, the problem with that climactic chase is that none of the vehicles that we saw in the caravan could be as 
fast or as nimble as the rig or any of the Raiders cars. Yeah. The Raiders drive a lot of muscly cars and motorcycles and dune buggies that are very agile. The compound has a bus and an old ambulance and I think there's a VW van in there. Yeah. Yeah. Not speedy or nimble, any of those. So that might be a serious problem. But I like the idea of them doing a similar trickery just set up a little bit differently. Yeah. If they could figure out how to make the raiders believe that the compound was full of fuel and that the caravan was driving away with only what they had in their tanks, maybe. Maybe. Maybe they could survive. The main thing that would make someone look at the idea of the caravan trying to escape and saying, no, there's no way that would work, is what the raiders do to the scouts when they try to leave. But those scouts were four vehicles on their own. There was no teamwork. And I feel like when the compound dwellers work together, sure, they're slapdash and they're not well-trained, but they can get things done. So if one of them thought up a surefire strategy and way to work together as a caravan to fight off the horde, it probably would have been really fun to watch. But it would have been a very different story. And I think at this point in the series' production, we've gotten to that point where we've recast Max as Tom Hardy. We've got the story of a Morton Joe and the Citadel and the Bullet Farm and the Gastown. There's so many stories to tell in the Wasteland that I feel like there are a lot of people out there saying, well, why not make it into an anthology story? at this point since you know the timeline's already crazy as is and there are so many other different experiences that you can explore i just wonder if the mad max series can survive as just a post-apocalyptic anthology i'll bet it can george miller has created not only a person with a history and experiences he's created an entire world Mm -hmm. And there's enough detail in that world that you can bounce it off in different directions. So I think the possibilities are there to go off and learn about other people and what they're doing. Yeah. I think the fact that there were so many imitators of the Road Warrior, so many filmmakers that saw Road Warrior and thought, oh, post-apocalyptic in the desert with muscle cars and fast chases. Let's do that. Right. People are so enamored with this setting and with this style of storytelling that I definitely think it would survive. I would be very interested to watch a movie about... Maybe the Lord Humongous as a character. And it's sort of a, I don't necessarily want to say Revenge of the Sith, Star Wars Episode 3 situation where he starts off as a good guy and then ends up the bad guy by the end. But I'd be very interested to see how a large muscle-bound dude wearing a leather diaper and a metal hockey mask is able to get all of those raider tribes to work together. And I'd be very interested to see a movie about how Auntie Entity started and got to the top of Barter Town. I'd be very interested to see some of these side stories brought to the screen. And I know there's a lot of talk about, oh, an Imperator Furiosa movie, which I think would be very interesting. But the question is, you know, do you stick with George Miller as a director because it's his vision and there's such an auteur feel to this series? Do you let other people direct it kind of like with the Star Wars series now that Disney has bought it? It's a big question. I'm not sure that the world is... I Okay, just a few minutes ago, I said that George Miller had created this world that can support all these different stories. That being said, I'm not sure the world is ready for other directors to have their say and their input. I think the world needs 
more work from George Miller as the creator of the world. Yeah. Before it has enough definition to be handled by other people. It almost needs to be a production Bible. Yeah. I'm not sure that yet there's enough material in that production Bible. Maybe one more movie and he, you know, working on laying out the, the ground rules of this universe. And maybe then it could be ready to be taken over by other directors. Oh, I would love to have George Miller sit down and just write that production Bible. Write down all of the rules of his post-apocalypse how it's supposed to look, how it's supposed to function, how people are. Just go through and lay it out so that when he gets to the point where he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm done directing movies, I'm ready to just retire and be George Miller, ordinary guy, that other people can pick up the torch. Because Warner Brothers has distribution rights to the Mad Max series. They're the ones releasing the movies worldwide and working with Village Roadshow Pictures and... The electronic entertainment wing of Warner Brothers is the one that released the 2015 video game. Like, they have control over that. And not to get too off the topic of movies, but when it comes to Warner Brothers and making money on things, they love making money on things, no matter how sketchy that is. Mm -hmm. So I can see George Miller stepping away from movies and being like, okay, I'm, I'm done. And Warner Brothers saying, hey, let us take this and let us put someone else in charge of it and keep going. And he might say yes, he might say no. I'm not quite sure how he feels about that. But I just love the idea of the universe that he's created. The look and feel of it, of post-apocalypse, huge cars, leather-clad warriors. It would be very interesting to see how other directors would continue on, whether it be Mad Max proper or anthology style. It'd be very interesting. Mm -hmm. Do you have any final thoughts for Mad Max to the Road Warrior before we more or less put it to bed. Thoughts about this project and how it's been? I really appreciate analyzing minute by minute the differences between the first movie and the second movie. It was a completely different experience doing season two. Analyzing Road Warrior minute by minute, completely different experience than Mad Max 79. And I think that's to George Miller's credit where he took this same character in a world that has changed drastically from the first movie to the second movie and continued this character on and continued his emotional journey even through the changes of the setting and in the environment. Yeah. And he does it throughout all four movies where Max's emotional journey continues on a typical, you know, ups and downs trajectory while the background changes completely wildly each time. <laughs> yeah. So that makes, you know, our jobs completely different from season to season. Yeah, keeps it interesting. Absolutely. What about you? Any last thoughts? I am so glad that we were able to take this time to talk about Mad Max to the Road Warrior. I love this movie. A lot of people really love this movie. And the experience that we've had talking about it one minute at a time, being able to interact with our listeners on Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone to see their reactions, especially to be able to talk to all of the guests that we had on this season. And we've got another guest episode lined up for tomorrow, so that'll be a lot of fun. But I feel like we were able to grow a lot as podcasters this season. And you got a lot more involved in production, so that was really awesome. And yes. we got 
so much positive feedback and critical feedback and this whole thing, this whole journey has been very gratifying for me and I've had such an amazing time and I'd like to say to all of our listeners, thank you for coming along this journey with us. It's been very interesting, very fun, very eye-opening at times, a little rough in some patches based on what was happening in the plot and I just want to say thank you so much for coming along with us. We've really enjoyed having you with us every step of the way. There is, however, one more step to take, and that is going to be tomorrow's episode because this movie is 95 minutes long in total, and so we are going to have 95 episodes in total. But tomorrow is going to be a little different. We've got some returning guests coming back, and we're going to sit down with them and almost flash forward to Thunderdome a little bit in how we do it, but still focus very much on Road Warrior. But at the same time, we're also going to pull Fury Road into it. It's going to be utter mayhem, I predict. (laughs) So definitely come back for that. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 94 of The Road Warrior. See you tomorrow.